0: stood out to me uh, was just that whole idea of just being wrecked. Um, I talk a lot with people um, about just their relationship with God, and I just say, you know, at some point, some of these truths that you're learning, um, you know, the information that you're gathering from studies and and Bible time and all that stuff, at some point, it's got to wreck you emotionally. It's got to connect to your heart. You've got to be able to connect your need and your... um, unmerited you know grace that god has showered on you and that's got to just destroy you at some points um to really appreciate what it is that god has done for you and what he offers us so um, well today we're going to kind of continue on to part two of the life of king david and what uh, kind of goes on in his story when he feels at times like god is a stranger to him And last week, we talked about the Psalms, and we talked about many of which David wrote, um, that the Psalms can kind of be broken down into three different categories, if you remember that. We talked about Psalms of orientation. So these are Psalms where um, everything seems to be kind of as it should be, right, according to God's kind of unchanging, unending character. So when the life's going right and God seems to be operating in a way that makes sense to us, we say that that those are seasons of kind of orientation for us. And then we talked about some psalms that are psalms of disorientation, and that's when we acknowledge that life is messy, and we live in a broken world, we're surrounded by broken people, we're broken, and so the result of that is that these disorientating disorienting, <laughs> seasons that we go through in life, where, where everything we thought we knew now is kind of jumbled, and we're not really sure who God is or where he is in the midst of this. And then we talked about psalms of new orientation, And that's when God kind of picks up the broken pieces of that season of disorientation and begins to fit them back together, but maybe in a new way that gives us a new understanding of who we are in Christ, who he is, what his nature and character is, or maybe just a different perspective on our circumstances moving forward. So David's life from where we kind of met him just briefly from lowly kind of shepherd boy to giant slayer to... Um, conquering, you know, military leader to anointed king, then began kind of crashing um, in a series of many of which were kind of self-inflicted struggles with, you guys are familiar with just the season of adultery and murder. Um, And then kind of piled on top of that were some other just very difficult circumstances, the death of a child, an attempted overthrow of his throne by one of his own sons. Um, So David Um, experience the full gamut of life's highs and lows. And so his interactions with God cover this broad spectrum of human emotion. I mean, this guy went through about everything you can. So there's a lot that we can learn from how did David navigate um, all of that, those seasons of orientation and disorientation. And we talked about last week that sometimes it seemed like he was on a seesaw going back and forth in the same psalm, trying to, to get it, all right in his head. So last week, we began taking a look at one of David's psalms, Psalm 69, and connecting with his heart as he prayed about this drowning feeling that he was encountering. We talked about the waters rising, right? And he was crying out to God, and God seemed to have kind of disappeared from his life. And in addition, we talked about that David kind of worried that other people around him we're watching him kind of drowned and, and maybe kind of lose faith or doubt a little bit, and he was worried that they were going to be impacted, their faith was going to suffer because of him. And he's like, "Man, I just don't want that to happen either." So we see a, a huge glimpse into his heart for others. And we asked a lot of hard questions about what kind of faith do we display to those around us when we're going through those seasons of disorientation that we all do? Do we fight like David? to kind of try to reorient our hearts and minds back to what we know to be true, to kind of steady ourselves when the winds and the waves of life are kind of rocking our soul? Or do we give in to despair? Do we give in to hopelessness or a victim mentality? You see, guys, it's easy to follow God when everything seems to be going right or like according to how we feel like life should be turning out. It's a whole different thing altogether to stay engaged with him in the darkness when things are kind of unraveling around us, when it feels like the waters are starting to rise up in our life. So I want to um, head back to that psalm. If you can open your Bibles to Psalm 69, it's page 529 in your Pew Bibles. We're going to take a look at verse 13. <clears throat> David says this, but I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor and your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. So, Krish Kandaya, who's the author we've been quoting a lot from his book, God is Stranger, um, he identifies kind of four things the rest of this psalm that David cries out for. Um, he says he cries out for rescue, reconciliation, retribution, and redemption. Okay? So, let's begin with Rescue. So in these verses that we just read, it's very clear that that David is asking God, crying out to him, hey, I want you to intervene in this situation, and I want you to to rescue me from this mess. And I'm sure that we've all prayed prayers like that, right? We've gotten into seasons of disorientation. We've prayed, God, you know, get me out of this mess. Like, stop the pain. I don't want to be in this this trial anymore. Whether it's our, our fault or someone else's, none of us like the discomfort Of being in a season of trials and we have to be very careful how we interpret what god is doing or isn't doing in those seasons okay sometimes he may respond quickly to our cries which is great other times it might feel like he's actually causing the pain or the calamity in our life and that he's quite content to allow us to suffer a while to mature our character in ways that only a little pain can do, right? My runners sometimes at practice cry out to me, Coach Miller, no more, right? But I'm like, no, a couple more painful moments will be good for you, right, to mature you. It's not that I don't care, but I just know the good that's going to come from the benefit of, of working through that pain. But there's a danger in treating God like I treat AAA, Okay, true confession time here, all right? We've been members of AAA for a while, all right? We pay those yearly dues. And pretty much anymore in my advanced age, um, if I get a flat tire, I'm calling AAA. I don't care what the situation is, Um, but certainly if I'm like on the side of a highway where people are flying by at 70 miles an hour or it's just rainy or icy or cold and I just don't wanna deal with it, I just call them, hey, come and change my tire, all right, that's what I paid for. It's not that I can't change the tire. It's that I just don't want to deal with it, the mess and, and just the whatever, the uncomfortableness, sometimes the danger in that moment, okay? Sometimes our prayers for rescue can be kind of like that, <laughs> a little bit self-serving, uh, sometimes where we lose sight of God and others. And this quote I came across this week kind of rocked my world. This is what it says. Maybe it's not that God himself makes himself a stranger by failing to intervene every time we ask for help. Perhaps we make God a stranger by ignoring the things he cares about. And that was kind of one of those punch-in-the-gut moments that Brittany was talking about. Just leave that up there if you can, Josh, for a minute. Here's what I think Kondiah is saying is that sometimes we need more than to be rescued. Sometimes what we need more than to be rescued is a refocusing of our heart to the things of God. Maybe when his concerns become ours, our worldly afflictions will kind of pale in comparison and kind of fade to the background, okay? Any, any, any reflections on that quote? How did that hit you? Thoughts. Yeah. The first thought that popped into my head was something that I read. I'm not real big on the, the telephone thing, but a guy sent me a deal the other day um, talking about different rooms that angels side in and work for God, and there was a room that, um, saying thank you and gratitude for the things that God does for us. And sometimes we take those for granted and don't show appreciation for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we just lose sight of the gratitude that we need to have. We get used to kind of just the daily blessings or miracles that are going on all around us. Yeah, read. That's mm-hmm. above our thoughts we don't understand what God's doing. We're not open to seeing it either. Mm. Because we want God to do what we want Him to do. Yeah. And so we don't realize that what God is all about is fulfilling the promise He made to mm. us in Philippians that He's gonna conform us to the image of the Son. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's great. So he's just talking about, you said a lot there, so I'm gonna try to, to summarize it up. Um, but just, you know, he began with just this idea of reminding ourselves that God's ways are not our ways. And honestly, I think this is a great point. He said that sometimes we, don't, we really don't wanna know what God's ways might be in a particular situation. We just want Him to do what we want Him to do. And we're not maybe even open to some other way that He might be thinking. Because remember, he said his biggest commitment is to shaping us into the image of Christ, and he's going to do whatever he needs to do in order to do that, whether we like it or not, right? So we should always feel free to cry out to God for rescue, okay? But in doing that, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. First and foremost, first and foremost, when we're crying out to God for rescue, is that he already rescued us, right? Right? He already rescued us from sin and death, probably the two most important things that you could be rescued from, okay? So we have to keep that in perspective. Now that those eternal concerns have been taken care of by Jesus' death and resurrection, our daily struggles pale in comparison to that and may not be as urgent on God's radar as our present circumstances might be on ours, Okay, God is saying, hey, I've dealt with the biggest problems you're ever going to have to deal with, right? So I'm just going to let this one go. <laughs> Maybe, you know, it might feel like he's not concerned, but he understands that there are bigger fish that he's fried already. Secondly, the trial we're asking to be rescued from, and this is kind of what we've talked about just a moment here, might be God's actual plan to mature and to shape our character and to make us into the image of Christ, right? Right? He may not be interested in rescuing us until we've learned what it is that he wants us to learn in the darkness. And for him, or hear this, church, (laughs) for him or some other well-meaning brother or sister in Christ to pull us out of the darkness or that season of disorientation too soon could be kind of short-circuiting what it is that God is trying to do in our lives, okay, and we do that to each other too. We, we get very uncomfortable with seeing the people that we love suffering. And so we rescue them and pull them out of a situation where God is really trying to mature them through this disorienting time. And I think sometimes he, I think he wish he would just say, hey, just hang on a little while. Let them sit in it. I'm doing something here. Let's not be premature. The second thing that David cries out for is reconciliation. Let's take a look at verse 16. He says, answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. and your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me from my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and ashamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart, and he is and has left me helpless i looked for sympathy but there was none for comforters but i found none they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst so david recognized his need to be reconciled to god and others what what does he say in that passage 16 to 21 that shows uh, that he understands that there's a fractured relationship between him and god what does he say Yeah, Phil? Okay, yeah, it says come near me. What else? So he recognizes there's some distance, right? Or some perceived distance. What else? Yes. Turn to me, okay? So there's a sense that, that's, that in his own mind, at least, that God has turned from him. So, um, yeah, he says, in your mercy, turn to me. He says, do not hide your face from me. So, in other words, David is kind of saying to God, I understand that I think I've done some things in which you could be frustrated with me, okay? His perception of God. So David feels guilty. He's asking God to show him mercy. And Kendiah explains this interesting space we can find ourselves in with God, He says, this paradox of guilt that both drives us away from God and drives us to him is probably strangely familiar to many of us. It is part and parcel of the problem of God as stranger. What we have in David is a vivid example of someone forced to recognize the moral distance between themselves and God, yet also recognizing that there is nowhere else to go with that moral guilt than back to God himself. the very person that we've offended is the only one that can really heal us. And so in truth, there's nowhere else for us to go. And these are times when reminding ourselves what is true about God is really critical, okay? These times where we sense there's some distance, perceived distance because we feel shame, we feel guilt over things that we've done maybe, or thought, ways we've reacted, responded, and so we sense that maybe God is frustrated with us or that we've created this barrier. And this is when we need to recite what's true, right? Because what's true about God when you look at Scripture is that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, Like right? That the Lord is compassionate, right? He is slow to anger, abounding in love, that his mercies for us are new every morning, that when we are faithless, he is faithful, Right, And I could go on and on with you, continuing to quote more scripture about what is true about him. And I don't say that like pat myself on the back, but, but guys, over the course of my journey and I hope it's true of you, I've made a decision to, to put what's true into my head and my heart so that when the lies come, when I have those moments where I don't feel connected to God or when I've lost sight of maybe what's true about him, I can reorient myself by reminding myself the words that God has given me about who he is. That even though I might think that way, feel that way, that is not who our Savior is, who our Father is in those times. And David certainly knew the word of God himself. In verse 18 through 21, we see David's recognition of fractured relationships with his fellow man. Okay, He, he understands that he needs to be reconciled to some other people, but according to the scripture, doesn't seem like that endeavor is going very well. Doesn't seem like the other people are really interested in, in doing the reconciliation dance with him. And I've been there before. What do you do when you have this fractured relationship with someone and you know that there's some healing that needs to take place, but they're not in, into it right now? <laughs> and as a matter of fact, some of their behaviors might actually kind of be escalating the tension between the two of you. That's a tricky place to be. And then starting in verse 22, we see David start down kind of this dark road of retribution. All right? He wants to reconcile, but it doesn't seem like it's working out. So here's what he says. He says, May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with a crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. How many of you have ever prayed a prayer like that? Chris, all right. Cool. Anybody else? Like you've just been like, mm, man, freaking wreck them. Those jerks, I mean, just oh god, just go off. Right? Anybody? Yeah, me either. <laughs> it's crazy stuff, isn't it? It's dark. Dark stuff. But those are not the only examples of David praying like this. Let's take a look at a couple other verses. This is from Psalm 58. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out their fang, the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Ugh. Right? Go to the next one. This is from Psalm 109. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mothers never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that, they may, that he may blot out their name from the earth. Dude needs to chill, man. Like... You're reading that and it almost becomes funny, right? You're just like, seriously, like, this is not, this doesn't sound like love your enemies, right? This is not like Jesus. And I think it's just, we're just so shocked that people talk like this in the Bible, right? I want them to be trapped by their ways, blinded, permanently disabled, make them homeless, right? Right? Wipe out their entire households, and while you're at, never show them any mercy and never save them, God. As I said before, like, just do whatever you have to do to these idiots. But then look at verse 29, right? Verse 29, but as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. David wants God to overlook his own sin but then bring destruction on everybody else, right? What is this? (laughs) Like, why does God even include this madness in Scripture? What are we supposed to be taking away? I mean, I might think some of these things, maybe, but to actually pray them to God, I mean... Some of you guys know that I'm a journaler, right? Like, if my kids someday read my journals and I wrote some of that stuff in there, I'd be, like, mortified. They'd be thinking, who is that madman, right? Okay? So, what do we do with this? Last week, we mentioned a theologian named Walter Brueggemann, and he says that <clears throat> we have three options, which are with our natural thirst for vengeance, okay? The first thing is we can, we can just act out on our feelings, We can get our pound of flesh, an eye for an eye, right? Somebody humiliates me, I'm going to humiliate them right back. You cheat on me, I'll cheat on you. You lie and slander me, I will put stuff on social media that will wreck your life. That's me trying to be tough. I don't know. Getting fired up over here, okay? So that's one option, right? Act out on your feelings. Do what feels right in the moment. Secondly, he says, we can deny those feelings or bury them down deep, all right? Just shove it down, all Right? Any shover downers out there? They're just like, yeah, there you go, okay? But we all know <laughs> that repressed feelings are going to pop up at some point in our life, right? If we let those hurts and wounds kind of fester beneath the surface unresolved, They're going, something's going to happen. It's going to trigger that pain, and that pain's going to go and you're going to explode. And a lot of times you explode on the person who's not really the villain in the story. You explode on the people that you love around you, right? So neither of those first two options seems very healthy. So option three, Bruggen says, is this, is to be honest, but place the situation in the hands of God. Okay. Some of you guys may have heard of a a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. Okay. He wrote a pretty famous book called um, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, He was Jewish and he spent three years in a Nazi concentration camp. And his goal in camp was to try to keep kind of the morale of the new arrivals from just plummeting with all the horrible things that they were seeing around them, to keep them from just slipping into despair and suicide. He had suicide watch for, for prisoners, um, basically to help them psychologically navigate the horrors that surrounded them every day. So one of Frankl's most famous observations was this. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. That's saying a lot for a guy who, I'm sure, daily dealt with these feelings of just justified vengeance roaming around in his head. What do we do in that space between stimulus and response? And what does it tell us about our growth and our freedom? That's a really, really good question to meditate on. Aristotle (laughs) actually had some really interesting insights about how to handle these desires of retribution. This is what Aristotle said. He said, anybody can become angry. That is the easy part. But to be angry with the right person and to the right amount and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way This is not within everybody's power. I think that's why David was saying that God should do those things to that person and not him, right? He knew, I probably won't handle this very well, right? Paul might have said it best in Romans 12, 19 through 21. If you can put that slide up there. You see, while David prayed that God would forgive him and smite his enemies, Jesus prayed that God would smite him and forgive his enemies. So where does this leave us? We all know what it feels like to kind of put on this mask or this happy face, especially in our jobs, right? Whether we're dealing with customers, patients, you know, students, athletes, parents, whatever your clientele is, We all know that when they're complaining about things, we can't just tell them what we really want to (laughs) say and keep our jobs, right? (laughs) I mean, I guess we can, but there would be consequences, right? And so we know what that feels like. So where can we go to say whatever is roaming around inside of us, no matter how ugly? And to be really honest, many of us keep our guards up even here at church, kind of unsure of whether we can truly communicate honestly with people without being misunderstood. So a lot of us have our guards up at work. We even have our guards up at church sometimes or around some friends that we're just not sure how they'd respond to something we might want to say. So where do we go? Well, here's the beauty of our Heavenly Father. Through David's example in Scripture is that God invites us to be honest and to complain And to argue. Because honestly, guys, here's the spoiler alert. He already knows what you're thinking and feeling on the inside. Right? So you might as well say it out loud. Because he already sees it. And he gives us that freedom to do that. And maybe even going a little bit deeper is that he already knew that you were going to have those feelings before he saved you. Before he offered you forgiveness and life with him. He's not surprised that this is what's going on in your head and mind right now. He's not disappointed that aren't you better than this? He already knew that you were gonna be thinking these things 15, 20, 25 years in the future when he met you that day at the cross and offered you life and forgiveness. And so I think sometimes, and maybe you've experienced this, it's safe to pray those things out loud. I think it can be really cathartic right? As we, as we just kind of blah, right? Everything that we were honestly feeling to God. Because I think it's like kind of an emotional release then that just kind of allows us to maybe have a little bit more rational thought moving forward, right? Just like sometimes you vent with a friend, right? You come in and you've got that safe friend and you just blah, like every dark, evil thought you ever had. Like, this person did this and, you know, I want to Freaking like David, punch them in the mouth and make all their teeth go all over the place, you know, or whatever it might be, right? Just unload. But why don't we feel like we can do that with God? What is our misperception about who he is, about what he can handle, or who we should be, that we can't be that same person with him when we already are on the inside and we already are with somebody else, right? Right? If you finish up the psalm, ultimately David lands in this place of redemption. He trusts, like kind of like in, of Paul in Romans, that God is going to make all things right one day. Um, he's going to redeem things because that's what he does and who he is. He's, he's a redeemer and a restorer of broken things if we cooperate with him. So over the long arc of David's life, through all of the ups and downs that he experienced, God at times seems very near, at other times seems very distant, There's times when David can obviously see God's hand of favor on his life, other times where he's wondering where God's hand went, or even if God's hand maybe is causing some of the pain in his life. And through all of that, the good, the bad, the ugly, David, as you all know, he's called the man after God's own heart. The guy who wrote that stuff we just looked at is the guy after God's heart so david's life and his interactions with god should give us a different picture of what a relationship with god should look like a new scorecard as we were kind of talking about earlier it's by no means perfect it was brutally messy at times right but we have to begin by understanding one thing first of all i think sometimes um we look at david and um we kind of think that our sins are different than his they're not. Okay, that's why Jesus came and he kind of reordered things and, 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 and said, hey guys, listen, it's not just what you do, it's also what you think, right? So your lustful thoughts are just as bad as David's adultery. You're um, thinking that you're better than other people and kind of staring down your nose at somebody, that's the same as murdering your brother. We're all on the same play field here, okay? And while we might not have a the, such dramatic swings of fate in our life, the question remains the same for all of us is what are we going to do with the pain that the seasons of disorientation bring us? What are we going to do with it? Is it going to come? Is it going to draw us closer to God? Is it going to draw others around us who are watching us go through that closer to Him? Are we going to cry out to God for rescue? Are we going to cry out for reconciliation with him, with the other people in our lives? Are we going to cry out for retribution, but leave the justice to God? While also believing in God's ability to redeem and restore all broken things. The way he wants to, and the timing that he chooses. So today as we come to communion... One of the things that I want you to um, wrestle with in this time of prayer before we head into it is what does it look like for you to be honest with him? What would it look like for you to pray the things that you feel totally free saying to your friends out loud or even thinking in your mind to just actually speak those things and just be honest with God and allow him to reshape your heart (laughs) tune it to the things that are most important to him right let's have a little experiment in honesty and see how god responds heavenly father thank you for this time we thank you for david um i know for me it's super hard to step into his mindset because i'm much more of a thinker than a feeler (laughs) i think he was kind of a feeler off the charts and uh, just Boy, man, the range of emotions that he expresses is just overwhelming, hard to keep up with. Um, and God, sometimes we—I don't know what to do with David's uh, heart, his rantings, his his anger. Um, as far as how it relates to you and the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with you and with one another, um, God, so just help us teach us how to be honest. Um, Teach us what a, a, a relationship of a man that's after God's own heart, what does that look like? It doesn't have to look like this very orderly, you know, we, we are always making good choices and we're always saying the right things. That doesn't necessarily equate, you know, an awesome relationship with God. It can be incredibly messy. I know that, gosh, the disciples were a mess a lot of times but they were guys that changed the world. And so God, help us just to have this freedom to understand that you love us. You already know the pain and the hurt, the feelings that we're having. So let's just be honest. And let's come to you, to your throne with confidence, knowing that we're forgiven, that we're loved, that we're righteous in your eyes. There's nothing we can do to change that. So God, just hear our prayers.